With training camp now visible on the horizon, the scent of real football activity becomes more and more palpable. As it does, we continue our deep dive into the Seahawks roster. The Athletics' brilliant Deontay Lee joins us to discuss Seattle's D-line as the positional breakdown series continues. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my smelly producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? All I'll say is it's uh, it's fitting you'd call me smelly when all of your takes stink. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm feeling ready, Jackson. I'm ready to get back on the, the podcasting horse. I'm ready for your very own Seattle Seahawks to extend uh, DK Metcalf. And I'm ready God, to dismantle that already? each and every one of your statements in bad faith from the peanut gallery. So let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. With that, man, I do got to say it is great to be back after a little early summer break. Uh, Not a lot has happened in the Seahawks front since our last show, and that's given us a chance to catch our breath a little bit before the really newsworthy stuff starts. Mike, you get excited about training camp, or is it mostly just non-news to you like the rest of OTAs? I'm really just kind of on the lookout for DK news, and I think no news is better than news that is not uh, extension-related. So yeah. It is what it is to me right now. Right. You you almost like expect the positive reports this time of year, right? You want to hear guys are doing good and they're in good shape and moving all around the formation and all that exciting stuff. But it's like, yeah, that should be expected. It's it's almost like the less you hear, the better, unless it is a DK extension, because usually it's this guy showed up out of shape or he got hurt or or whatnot. So um, I'm, I'm kind of with you there, but there is – definitely a little quickening of the heart rate when uh training camp starts because now everybody is there and it really is about getting ready for football and not just checking an off-season box so uh that part of it's pretty exciting for me but i'm mostly just stoked because we got someone joining us today that you and i have been wanting to get on here for a while he is a remarkably astute writer and has recently become one of my favorite football related follows on twitter he is the athletics deontay lee deontay thank you so much for coming in man thank you guys for having me thank you for uh persevering with me while we tried to get this thing to happen <laughs> i had to battle off some strep throat and you know dad duties and, and all of the like so i'm definitely glad to be jumping on now and talking ball the way that i like to do nah man that that's how you know it was meant to be we had a couple of false starts but we're we're here now and we're we're stoked to have you and and to be honest i'd seen your name on twitter for a while when things you post get retweeted by people in my feed but i didn't really sink my teeth into your stuff until i read your brilliant eulogy of the legion of boom and then I heard you as a guest on a friend of our show, Mina Kimes' podcast, and Mike and I were like, we got to get him, man. <laughs> so I'm wondering, how did you develop your keen understanding of scheme, especially on the defensive side, when so many others are hyper-focused on offense? Well, the scheme understanding stuff just comes from time as a player and time as a coach. Like, for me, mm-hmm. once I got to – so I played at Sacramento State, 
And when I got there, it was really kind of evident to me that whatever my future in football was going to be, it was going to happen from the neck up. Like I, <laughs> I had finally gotten to a level where I was like, okay, not the fastest, not the strongest, don't jump the highest. Like I, I guess I probably yeah. do need to spend some time in the playbook and in the film room a little bit. Um, and I was I was really fortunate. My my position coach was Andy Avalos, who's a head coach at Boise State. Um, he was my linebackers coach while I was there, and while he was only there for my redshirt year, I spent a lot of time with him. You know, um, in the meeting room really try to pick his brain and come to understand the way that defense works right um, and playing linebacker is a really good position for that because you are kind of the intermediary between what's going on you know up front and in coverage so it's important for you to understand how all the pieces fit together and then leaving from leaving from playing and, and going on to coach um, which I've been doing this will be it's 2022 so this will be my sixth season as a coach at the high school level, I'm obviously just trying to grow and be the best version of myself on, on the football field as a coach as I can be. That requires bringing in a lot of information. So I spent a lot of time studying and um, from a media standpoint, I just figured that it would be a really, it would be a great opportunity, a good lane for me to try to carve my way into because not a lot of, t- not a lot of people spend time on it. Um, and defense is one of those funny things where it, it, it's a thing in football where everybody can point out where something goes wrong, right? A corner pulls a hamstring and gives up a 65-yard bomb. Everybody can can point that out and say that that went wrong, right? Um, you know what I mean? A guy misses a tackle on a run, and Derrick Henry goes for 55 yards down the gut. You know, you anybody can point that out. Um, but it's a lot harder to point out the nuances on what make what makes defenses work beyond just good player got football, right? Like, so that that's kind of the thing that I I really wanted to drill down into is what are the nuances in the game, especially on the defensive end, how all these pieces fit together. Um, because ultimately, I think that the fans kind of deserve to have a better understanding of the way that things work on that end of the ball. And it, honestly, if you understand defense really well, it will enhance how well you understand offense because you'll know where all the weaknesses and strengths are to be attacked or to be avoided. And, and I think that that just makes for a more well-rounded fan. Since you yourself were a linebacker, do you have any thoughts on the uh, recent uh, devaluing of the position, the running back of the defense, if you will? It is the running back. <laughs> well, it is. Defense. I mean, it, it's funny, man, like, because I think there are two conversations that have to happen, right? The first one is financial value. So that's where everybody's at right now, right? It's like, okay, you probably don't want to be spending $15 million on a linebacker if they're not adding value to you in coverage. So that makes that makes a lot of sense, right? There's a reason why Zach Cunningham didn't last, all, you know, to the end of his contract in Houston, right? Because it's just hard to justify paying a guy $15 million who's a liability on third down or second and long. Right. That, so there's just kind of like the very obvious, just looking at allocation of resources. Um, I do think that obviously Twitter being a place that's full of just bad faith arguments. Now that everybody's picked out a target, it's just, you know, just hitting the target over and over and over again. You know, so it's low hanging fruit in that way. But then from just like an actual on the field perspective, and this is something that I go through. I don't interact with everybody on Twitter, but this is something that will always push my button is people who just have a fundamental misunderstanding of what linebackers actually do. Like I said, anybody can pick out like, oh, this linebacker can tackle. That must be a good thing. It's really hard to understand that like for Fred Warner, for example, not only is he a really good coverage backer, like when he's actually producing at the catch point, but the fact that he can get depth and coverage means that his safeties can do more. And when his safeties do more, that means that there's not as much pressure on the corners. And now you're kind of building an entire coverage structure around a guy like that. Same thing with Luke Keekley, you know, at his, in his prime in Carolina, um, same thing with Bobby Wagner in his prime in, in Seattle, right? Like 
having these guys kind of help put the whole picture together. Um, and it's hard to really get an understanding for a guy doing that in coverage if he's not sticking a guy man to man. And it's pretty rare that linebackers are really playing straight man coverage on true receiving threats. So there's just the nuances in that. So while I do agree that you don't want to be paying, you know, a, a large share of your cap to a linebacker, it would be wrong. It would be incomplete in, in anyone's understanding to think that you can just run cheap vets or minimum level players out at the linebacker spot. And I think that you're still going to have a good defense. That's just not the way that it works. I appreciate you riding for your position like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. But it's, it's important, man. You, you got to have this perspective because, you know, especially on Twitter, you get these conversations just carried to their extreme when the reality lives in the middle, the vast majority of the time. And, and the things that Deontay's talking about, those aren't box score contributions, Right. Like there's no line in the newspaper or on Sports Center about how the safeties now get more depth and range because of how well the middle linebacker is dropping back in coverage. So, you know, it's it it seems like it's one of those and and I say this as a spreadsheet guy, it's something that there's not a sell for on Microsoft Excel, right? Like you just need to have some football understanding to appreciate the value of a really good linebacker, even if they don't have a ton of sacks or interceptions or things of that nature. Right. Absolutely. I mean that, and in those nuances, again, explains the game within the game, right? Like football is one of these like very rare sports where the binary doesn't even tell like 10% of what actually is happening on a play-by-play basis. You can tell anybody what the results <laughs> right. are, right? A, ball, a pass was completed, yards were gained, points were scored. But what actually happened in the in the intervening time, that's the stuff that doesn't always fit into box scores. You know, obviously at my last stop at Pro Football Focus, that is the focus of the job, no pun intended, is trying to get into the weeds of is that guy performing well or not, you know, based, you know, independent of the result. And even in that, there can be some pitfalls, right? Because that does require a high level of understanding of what a defense or what an offense, what a particular position player is supposed to do, you know, given the play call and what they saw and how they respond to it. So those are, you know, those are all things that we have to sort out um, and do a better job of, I think, as analysts. And like I said, man, that is my number one focus. And the more of that I can do, again, it helps you understand offense that much better. Because now when a guy like DK Metcalf can catch a dig, right, and, and turn it into an explosive gain, you can look and see like, oh, that's because their linebackers aren't very good at getting depth or their safety is not very good at dealing with play action, right? And you get just a better understanding of the entire picture, literally all 22 guys on the football field it's clear we're speaking with someone who understands defense on a very high level and we are going to tap into that knowledge further in a minute but before we do the one newsy item that's been circling the seahawks lately has been the persistent rumor of a baker mayfield acquisition however shortly before we started recording mayfield was traded to the panthers for a conditional day three pick that means that barring something completely unforeseen seattle is pretty locked in to geno smith and drew Locke as potential starting quarterbacks I'll boil it all down to one question for you, Deontay. Do you see a world in which either of these guys is starting for Seattle in 2023? Yes, but I don't think that that's the plan. I will say I I don't believe that that's the plan. And it's funny, knowing the news before I jumped on, when I jumped on, I I was expected to see champagne and cigars from both of you guys. So now (laughs) that whole Baker Mayfield saga is just concluded and it doesn't involve the Seahawks at all. Um, I'm wiping my brow on that one. Absolutely. (laughs) So I I do think 
the there is a world that exists where it just might be in their best interest not to make a move at quarterback. A lot of that's just going to depend on how draft positioning works out, right? Because there's definitely going to be an opportunity if this is a quote-unquote retooling year, especially on the offensive end where maybe you want to address that position. And, you know, we'll see if there's a disgruntled veteran that comes up or you end up being able to draft high enough or you're willing to part with enough draft capital to get into that top three. There will be quarterbacks available next year, I think, that could address the need. Um, so I think that in an ideal situation, you know, you're competitive this year and then you're able to make your move for your quarterback. But it's it's entirely possible that that's not the case. And if that's not the case, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with my guy Griff, who's on Twitter as C Mike Spin Move. He has been <laughs> are spreading we? another friend of the show. <laughs> yes, he has been another spreading podcast, all the Geno yes. propaganda to me that I can yeah. <laughs> that I can possibly take. Yeah. So, you know, we'll we'll see propaganda how this thing goes. Propaganda implies that he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We can ignore anything that Travis Homer truther is saying. <laughs> fair, fair. The combination of him and Maddie Brown sometimes, man, it's dangerous. Like you it guys is, have to leave me is. alone. It's too much. Wow, we we we've had them both on this very show, and and man, I'm I'm telling you, they're they're smart enough to get away with it. Absolutely. Oh man, they'll spin they'll spin the tail, and I've caught myself a couple of times like, you know what, Gino can do this. I'm, he's right. You've been excellent propagandist, Welcome. man. Excellent propagandist. Yeah. yeah, totally. You know, uh, Mike and I are on on the same page. I I mean, outside of continually seeing Malik Willis available for their first four picks, you start to be like, oh, well, maybe, you know. But outside of that, we, we've we been kind of hoping they punt on quarterback this year. It, you know, it just – there's so much about this season that reminds me of 2011, which was the bridge year between Hasselbeck and Russell Wilson and, and Pete Carroll and John Schneider's second year and, and really their first one with a lot of draft – capital first one with a lot of cap space and they resisted the urge to draft an Andy Dalton or Colin Kaepernick they resisted the urge to sign Peyton Manning that year and and just built the team around it they they built the house before they moved the quarterback in and that's what I've been rooting for them to do this year is don't force Russell's replacement take a year see what you got you've got an offensive line that has a ton of growing to do like let someone, I, I hate to put it this way, but let someone a little bit more expendable spend a season behind that line, figure out what you got. And then you've got crazy draft capital next year, four picks in probably the top 50-ish, and what could very well be the most cap space in the NFL to spend. So I we're, we're right there with you, man. I, I, I think you just roll the ball out with whoever you got already. See what you got at the other positions. Don't get too caught up in win-loss this year, and then really take your shot next season. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. In a lot of ways, like, I think that Seahawks fans are almost victims of their own success, right? Because it, it makes it Absolutely. easy to forget just how well, you know, they were able to build this roster out to last for as long as it did and be competitive for as long as it had been. Um, I trust I trust this, this brain trust, you know, of Pete Carroll and John Schneider because I've seen it already. And I saw yep. them do this with the Seattle team that was really kind of rudderless when they took over as a regime, right? And they were able to really build this thing out in their own in their own image, and, and they had their own way of doing things. And obviously, we see the success that existed there. 
Um, like I said, man, I trust this. I trust this thing. And I think that one of the biggest signals to me that let me know is what I noted in what I was talking about in that piece for The Athletic, which is that Pete Carroll finally was able to take a step back and say, hey, what I did last decade isn't good enough for this decade. Love Defense is my thing. And my my original idea that I stepped in with has been caught up to now. Everybody's adjusted. Well, let me find the next best idea and see if I can implement that into my own process. It just so I understand the anxiety because this is coinciding with understanding that, hey, maybe we have to make a move with Russell Wilson. Right. So that that kind of adds to the anxiety in terms of where the franchise stands. But that comes with a bunch of opportunity to your point in terms of draft capital and cap space. The cupboard is basically going to be pretty clear. You know, after yeah. after you make this extension for DK Metcalf, there's really not a whole lot left on the docket to do with this roster now. You know, everything is pretty well set to be able to get a clean slate, a clean look at, okay, here's exactly how we want to attack this. You've got the draft capital to do so. You've got the money available in a free agency to do so. And I think that next offseason, not only can you address quarterback, you're going to be able to evaluate making this defensive scheme change and say, all right, here's the personnel we need to make it happen. And now we can go do that. The same thing just happened with Brandon Staley. He just already had the quarterback in tow, right? right? That, that, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah, the only exactly. difference, right? But that's the exact same kind of trajectory they were on. You know, you want to be as yes. competitive as possible. You evaluate what you've got and you've got all the resources available to you to go out and answer whatever problems may arise in 2022. Yeah, and you said it perfectly. I, I, when you said victims of our own success, as a Seahawks fan, I, I felt that because I've been stressed out every Sunday for 10 years, man. And it's like that's I, – I wouldn't trade it. Like that's what comes with championship expectations or mm -hmm. at the very least contention expectations. And it's been really fun as a Seattle sports fan to have a team that you're like, yeah, there's a story you can tell that sees these guys in the Super Bowl this year for 10 straight years. There, right. There's a lot of fan bases that never get that. I'm kind of looking forward <laughs> to being able to be a little bit more emotionally detached from the wins and losses and just evaluate the team a little bit before I get ready to get hurt again next year. Oh man. I can tell you as a post 2017 Eagles fan, there is no better feeling than knowing like, Hey, it's never going to be better than it was. It's never going to feel better than that. Why would I stress myself out? This is I'm a USC fan and an Eagles fan. And it's the same thing. You know, having Pete Carroll, obviously be, being the head coach for the SC dynasty, man, after 2009, I was like, you know what? This last decade is probably as good as it's ever going to get. Why yeah. would I spend my time? Why would I lose any more sleep over this? I'm not going to go chase the dragon, man. Let me just, I'll find the guys I like. I'll root for the guys I like, and I will rest my head at night. So please enjoy 2022 as Seahawks fans, because just like you said, this thing is going to pivot pretty quickly. These guys are usually pretty good at identifying what they need to be competitive. And I would not be surprised in a season or a season and a half time if we're looking at, you know, the standings and saying, oh, man, these guys might end up winning the division again. Or they're just as competitive. They can be the hot team, you know, coming out of the wild card. And, and that stress, that blood pressure is going to start rising totally. again pretty quickly. So enjoy the downtime while you've got it. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I've I've said and and written that there was a calendar year in between the dismantling of the Broncos and Malcolm Butler. Yeah. And I realized that in that one 12 month period, I experienced the highest high that I ever will as a fan. I mean, we're talking about a Super Bowl blowout against yes. the greatest offense of all time, cementing those players as one of the greatest teams in NFL history, followed by the most heart-wrenching <laughs> championship loss you can imagine. Yes. That 
that just gets perpetuated as a punchline yes. on Twitter forever, right? Like it's never going to feel worse than that's going to feel. So like now I know, I know what the extremes are. Yeah, I, I can exist in front of it and and I'm excited to just kind of chill for a year and, and be a little bit more uh, cognizant as an NFL fan too, right. and pay a little bit more attention to, to some of the exciting players on the other team because the league's full of them. But you know, the main reason we brought you on today was we wanted to talk about the Seahawks defensive front. And I think in order to do that, it's helpful to get a little bit clearer understanding of how the defense is evolving. You pointed out that Pete Carroll showed enough self-awareness to say what's worked for the last decade probably won't work for the next decade. Uh, he even used in a, a postseason uh, press conference, he said, we've been a little bit arrogant on that side of the ball. And and that is something that I value in a head coach as much as anything else is, is self-awareness, is willingness to adapt because uh, the NFL is too smart. It's the fastest learning organism on the planet. You can't just keep doing the same thing. So uh, with Ken Norton Jr. gone now, that side of the ball is going to be helmed by Clint Hurt and highly sought after assistant Sean Desai. As a result, we've heard a lot about Seattle adopting a Fangio scheme or, or a Vic Fangio adjacent type scheme on defense. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? So in a lot of ways, I, I understand some people here like three, four, four, three, and then coaches go in front of microphones and they kind of dismiss some of the differences and it leads people to yep. think that like it doesn't matter. And I don't know that I believe that. Um, you know, especially with what we're talking about today in terms of the defensive front. But basically, the best way I can describe it is like what what was before was a defense, whether it was under Ken Norton Jr., under Gus Bradley, um, you know, that that entire kind of cadre, again, that brain trust defensively, where it's all about creating negative plays or trying to create explosive plays defensively, right? you got yep. four down linemen. You know where they're going to line up. They're always tearing up the field, looking to create as much disruption as possible. You've got your linebackers that are always playing downhill, right, because they've got one gap to fit. Um, and you're basically playing one-on-one -on -one coverage everywhere else across the field, right? And there is still obviously a place for that. You know, one of the things I tweeted yesterday is that, for as much as defensive trends change still to this day, the go-to thing to do defensively on third down to get off the field is to rush four and play cover one, right? And, and that was kind of the Seahawks mantra, you know, it was cover one and cover three with a four-man rush, you know, in this last decade, this era of the Legion of Boom defense. So I think that they're transitioning out of that and playing a little bit more, I don't want to call it soft or conservative, but I would say a little bit more layered, right? Where instead of trying to, I think, chase the explosive play, right? Instead of playing one-on-one -on -one coverage, instead of playing so aggressively, now the mentality is we're trying to eliminate explosive plays happening to us. That's kind of where NFL defense is at right now. That's what makes Vic Fangio as, as popular a name as it is. That's what makes Brandon Staley the new boy wonder type of coach, you know, in, in this in this era of the NFL, right? It's an understanding of, hey, in an era where everybody's using RPOs and play actions and bootlegs and, you know, these different formations to try to force defenses into being very vanilla so that way they can hit the ball in these intermediate to deep areas for, you know, these explosive offense, explosive offensive plays on early downs, it's more important than ever to play with more depth and more layers in the defense. So it's not just up front, right, in terms of changing the body types. But because you're changing the body types up front, it's really all about we want to keep safeties deep. 
right? La last era is Cam Chancellor up near the line of scrimmage. That's what it was, right? This this era is going to be more of, hey, Jamal Adams, you will have to play at some point near the line of scrimmage, and that probably still is what you do best. But we do need more of you playing deep in the quarter, right? Playing your quarters coverage, your cover four, your cover twos, your quarter, quarter halves to eliminate those explosive plays. And now where it all ties together is because you're spending more time with safeties deep, you now need bigger bodies up front to be able to stop the run because you don't have as many guys in the box. It's just math. If we don't have a numbers advantage, then you need to have a body type advantage. And that's why I think some of these defensive linemen acquisitions and the way that I think this depth chart might shake out is going to reflect that. You're going to play bigger up front. You're going to play with more depth on the back end. And that allows your linebackers, I think, to play really, really patiently in between them. And that's what I think they're after in this era of Seahawks defense. So when you mention switching up the body types, are, are you just saying just get more weight up front? Absolutely. Absolutely need bigger butts up front, man. <laughs> that is, that's the priority. And obviously it's reflected, right? And Shelby Harris, you got Quentin Jefferson. So, you know, you've got Puna Ford around, you know, I think that these Them are some big butts. I mean, a lot Al, of haunches, yes, a lot of haunches. Al, Al Woods is, you know, Al Woods is probably <laughs> two of me in one, you know? <laughs> so you got, you got a lot of heft, you know, on the interior. And again, that's because you're going to be playing more with light boxes. You're going to have a linebacker that might have to step out of the box to deal with the tight end you might have you know your slot defender is going to have to play pass first more often you're not going to be playing with one high safety and loading up the box and if, again that means there's no numbers advantage in the box so now not only do you want to have big bodies on the inside you need those big bodies to execute the techniques to take away those interior gaps so that way teams can't just run inside zone at you until your eyes bleed right that's what it's all about and in doing that and in accomplishing that like i said your linebackers get to play with more depth and the more depth they can play with the harder it is to hit those intermediate throws in the nfc west i mean you guys know it because kyle shanahan will do it until you call until you cry mm. uncle you know it's yeah. play action intermediate throw play action intermediate throw you know same thing with sean mcveigh you know we've seen Dude, it he with, just at, at sean mcveigh just runs he just runs the bomb from yes. nfl blitz <laughs> against the seahawks like eight times a game and goes like six for eight for 120 yards. Oh, it's been it's been torture watching the Rams play the Seahawks for like the last five years, man. It, it's been rough um, because he's just so good at picking out like these are the plays that work against these looks, and we're just going to spam them until we win, right? And, and I think that now that's what this adjustment is all about is being able to cause more confusion for offenses or at least shrink the playbook on yes. early downs, right? More confusion, yes, shrink the playbook, that. force teams to hand the ball off on first down. No more of turning first down into first down. You're going to make them earn it. Longer drives, more second downs, more third and longs. That's what this is all about. That's what defense is all about. And this is the best way to go about doing it in this current era. Man, I fell in love with Pete Carroll and this era of Seahawks football in large part because they created so much chaos on defense. And in the last three and a half, four years, it's just – that's just been taken away. There's been no teeth, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's just like, okay, you know, we're gonna hope that we keep them to three first downs instead right. of four or five, <laughs> right. and then they'll punt it to the ten yard line, and and we'll go from there. And and that's been, you know, look, their defensive DVOA, their their defensive EPA has always been okay mm -hmm. through all of that. It's just not a fun brand of football to watch. Yes. And and I'm looking forward to getting back to a little bit of chaos on the defense and and just forcing early results. Uh, you know, I, I 
I just want to see some turnovers. I want to see some sacks and I'm willing to gamble a little bit to get it. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned that this new scheme is reflected in the personnel. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that. And I want to break it down between guys that are on the perimeter, the defensive line and guys that are in the interior. So Mike, if you got it, can you hit us with the edge slash defensive end guys that are on the Seahawks right now? Oh, Jackson, I got it. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's, uh, so we, we covered this um, beforehand a little bit when we talked linebackers in this positional breakdown series, but uh, let's, let's go back over it a little bit. Let's um, let's reconvene with the roster. We've got uh, Daryl Taylor and Alton Robinson who are the um, incumbents. We have uh, Uchenna Nwosu coming in from uh, the Chargers in free agency, and you've got rookies Boye Mafe and Tyreek Smith. Deontay, who stands out to you in that group? So, I mean, the guy that I'm probably most interested in from a usage perspective is Boye Mafe, right? Like, I think stepping into the NFL, he's probably closer to being a designated pass rush guy than a three-down edge defender, just kind of based on his tape, at, you know, at Minnesota. That, so I was a little concerned. You know, it's not like they spent a first-round draft pick on him. So, you know, I, I wasn't beside myself about the pick, but I'm most fascinated to see just exactly what kind of um, career he's able to chisel out for himself early because he does have a lot of growth that he needs to make in terms of being a run defender. The other names, you know, you think about Uchina Nwosu, like that to me is like prototypical, you know, solid role player type on the edge. You know, that's what he was for Los Angeles. I think that's exactly why he was brought in, right, is because he's got experience in the defense. He's comfortable playing basically any role. He can be a secondary rusher. He can drop into coverage if that's necessary. Um, you know, he, you can use him in any personnel grouping, and I think that he can survive in that way. So those are the two that I'm really kind of fascinated by. I think Daryl Taylor will be pretty solid, you know. Um, the one thing for me, you know, just looking at the group in total, and I think that this is why you go out and get a boy Amafe is, who's going to be the explosive pass rusher, right? Which of these guys can really mm -hmm. step out and separate themselves and be an explosive pass rusher? Um, playing more too high defense, too high safety defense, means you're going to get more numbers advantages and coverage. So quarterback should be holding the ball longer, but it doesn't matter how long they hold the ball if they're not being affected by the pass rush, right? So you do need a guy who is going to be down in and down out, able to create pressure. And if not, that means sending more blitzes and more blitzes means more single high. And now we are creating the exact problem that making all these schematic changes is supposed to address in the first place. Right. You know, you mentioned Wosu and he's someone that, uh, I, I liked, but didn't know a lot about. And so of course, after Seattle signed him, I, I started looking a little deeper and, mm -hmm. and he definitely doesn't strike me as a cornerstone player and he's not being right. paid as such, but he does seem to be someone that's good for a number of splash plays throughout the season and, and kind of momentum turners. Uh, do you see that coming at the cost of more blitzing with this scheme? Or is it mostly like, hey, we are going to get the advantage in coverage and we're going to trust the four of you up front or three of you as situation dictates to go win? I think ideally you would like to be able to do the whole, again, the point of making the schematic change is so that way you don't have to send as many blitzes, right? Or that if you're sending blitzes, it's with the explicit intent and purpose to really affect the quarterback, right? Like you've got some kind of beat on what they do in protection or, you know, they have a guy that's weak up front or you're trying to keep the back end so he doesn't release so you get even more of an advantage in coverage. There are some different ways to go about it. But ultimately, you play with two deep safeties 
in order to, to play with a coverage advantage. And playing with a coverage advantage more often than not means that you've got to rush four and only four. So that And that's why, again, I get a little concerned when I look at this lineup in terms of who is really going to create that high-level, consistent pass rush week in and week out so you don't have to blitz. Like I said, the more of that you have to do, the more you're creating the style and structure of defense that you just had for the last decade, and that will probably spell trouble. You know, or it would at least be a little bit of defeating the purpose of making all these staff changes in the first sure. place. Let's let's talk a little bit about the guys up the middle. You know, one of the things that's always kind of stood out to me is how Pete Carroll has built his defenses right up the spine. With the NFL prioritizing guys on the outsides, edge rushers, outside linebackers, corners. And you see this in average draft capital, average salary, et cetera. Carroll is kind of steadfastly invested in the core of the defense. They've paid top-of-the-market prices to extend Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, Jamal Adams, Quandre Diggs, safety. Uh, they made Bobby Wagner the highest-paid middle linebacker ever. They drafted Jordan Brooks in the first. They've been willing to pay good money to keep their defensive tackles in-house. It's really unique. It is. And actually, I think that because they've made these kinds of investments, I'm actually a little confident in what they're going to look like up the middle of this defense. Like, I, I'm a fan of Jordan Brooks, um, you know, and what he's done early in his career. Um, you know, I, I know that some of the some of the box score statistics are a little inflated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you mean playing 95 plays a game on defense is going to inflate your think, tackle yeah, think, count a little bit? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit easier to get 150 plus tackles. With, <laughs> with Seahawks have like the five highest tackle guys in the NFL. Yeah, that's so. the Chris Borland special, right? Right, there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I do think that you know, up the spine of this defense, there's a lot to be happy about. You know, going out and getting these 300 plus pound guys as defensive tackles matters you know how good they are is all going to depend on what we'll see but using the Brandon Staley example again I don't think that any of them are going to be as bad as Jerry Tillery looked last year right it's not going to be like an abject disaster I, I trust these guys as veterans to be able to get the job done a lot of them are already experienced playing in three four defensive structures so I'm kind of confident that they'll be able to execute and then when I look at their safeties room a Quandre Diggs is you know maybe one of my five favorite safeties in the NFL right now, somebody that I knew for a fact making this scheme change that Seattle was going to have a high priority on making sure they retained. So I'm not surprised that he's still around. I think that when you look at some of the best versions of Jamal Adams, it's using him in a versatile fashion and not just trying to stick him in one spot. I think that this kind of defense allows for that as well. And by playing more too high defense, I think that you can always put him in positions where he's at an advantage, right? Where he's lined up on the side of the tight end at all times. You know, he's got a coverage advantage over those guys more often than not. He's got underneath help. And I think that that allows him to do some of the things he does best. And you're not losing the ability to blitz him, right? You're not losing the ability to bring him down into the box when you need to stop the run. So those options are all still available to you. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of potential, like I said, up the middle of this defense to really be full of good playmakers and guys who who add value to this defense. Yeah, well, this is music to my ears because the only way the Jamal Adams trade works is if you weaponize the guy. And they've they've really struggled to do that. And those listening who have listened to this podcast for a while know that that's kind of my frustration with this front office. It's not that they're taking the home run swings. I love that they traded for Percy Harvin and Jimmy Graham and Jamal Adams. Like you win with good players, but then you got to put them in position to do what they do. And they've kind of always seemed to have struggled with that. And, and hearing you talk about how the new scheme 
does open up possibilities for the person that I think is the most dynamic player on that defense is encouraging because he's one of those guys where he can be a first team, all pro caliber, strong safety if you put him in position to do that. But if you're asking him to be Troy Polamalu and do everything at a top end level, then he's going to look not worth the trade. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so that part is, is really encouraging, but uh, bringing the focus back up towards the ball. Uh, I, I do want to run through the guys that Seattle's got at D tackle here. Mike, do you got some of those names for us? Of course, Jackson, we've got the Thickums <laughs> brigade coming right up. We've yes, got Puna Ford, Brian Puna. Monet, Al Woods, LJ Collier, who were all on the roster last year. They're bringing back an old fan favorite, Quentin Jefferson. Love and him. then um, straight out of Denver, we have Shelby Harris. Okay. There's there's two names in there that stand out to me. But, Deontay, I want to see if they're the same. Is there anybody on that list that you're like, yeah, that, that catches my eye in this scheme? Um, I'm really interested to see what Puna Ford looks like. That's one of mine. In this defense. Mm-hmm. That, that's definitely a guy I think who can add a lot of value as like a nose tackle. Um, that's somebody I'm really kind of fascinated to see. I think a guy that they probably have been looking for, you know, somebody who can do some of the things that I think he does well in terms of playing up the middle of the defense and really freeing up your linebackers to flow to the ball. So that's somebody I'm really interested in. And then Shelby Harris is the other guy. Like, how much can you ah, get? Can you get out? Mind meld, baby. Two for two. Yep, that that's a guy that I'm really looking for. Like, not only can he add value to you in terms of base package, base three four stuff, but when you get into your nickel looks, like, is that a guy who can stay on the field and continue to add positive value? He's somebody I'm really interested in. Obviously, six sacks last year suggests the fact that he can play on passing downs. You know, he's somebody who is a bit of a, a producer in, in passing situations, despite being a really big body type. And I think that having that available to you now really, again, to your point with Jamal Adams, it puts your best players on the field in the positions where they're most likely to succeed. And I think that that's something that's kind of been sorely missed with some of Seattle, what Seattle's been trying to do defensively lately. I'm really glad that you talked about Shelby Harris because he's another guy like Nwusu that I heard the name, had a favorable impression of, didn't really know a lot about until he was a Seahawk. And he did not come to the Seahawks through some normal avenue. Right. He will always be known as someone that was included in the package for the biggest trade in Seattle sports history since Ken Griffey Jr. And 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 there's pressure that comes with that. And and you're talking with somebody who's given the circumstances, generally a fan of the return Seattle got for Russell Wilson. But I feel like Shelby Harris, along with Noah Fant, are kind of the linchpins for how successful this trade is. I feel like I feel like sacks from the defensive tackle position are so much more valuable than sacks from the edge. Because if I'm a quarterback and I'm going through my reads, I want to know that I can step into my throw. And I can still do that if pressure's coming from the edge. I can't do that if pressure's coming up the middle. Absolutely. I mean, the worst thing in the world is to see a 300-pound guy running right into your lap, right? Like that, <laughs> right, that, that right. sounds like a disaster. I don't care what kind of quarterback you are, right? So having a guy, again, who has a little bit of a history, especially once he got with Vic Fangio, of I think kind of unlocking some of the best of himself as a pass rusher from the interior, I think, again, that's very, very encouraging if you're Seattle. And I think that that also kind of helps with the fact that you don't have that, you know, t- dominant force on the edge in terms of pass rush. So if you're not going to have that one star guy right now, you want that production spread as evenly as possible. And I think that having Shelby Harris there allows you to do that. 
you know, listening to Mike read through those names, this, I think I'd been underestimating the depth that Seattle has on the interior of their line. You know, that's that's a position that requires a tremendous amount of energy, and, and and every NFL position does on every play. I'm not saying that. It's just it's just a very different one. Like anyone who's done a bunch of different types of workouts is you can do cardio a lot longer than you can do plyometrics, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like defensive tackle is a very plyometric position where it's short, explosive, strength focused movements and that wears you out way faster so i think having depth up the middle on the defensive line there really is some hidden value there i think so and i think that one of the guys that i'm really going to be focused in on is lj collier right like i i need to see him give something more i think i need to see him kind of live up to what's been expected of him you know when he was drafted and brought in i think that if it's going to happen this is a point in time where it really needs to because if he can add value in this rotation now you're talking about having maybe four to five guys, you know, on your defensive interior that can really add value to you. And that's a rare occurrence in the NFL. It's hard to get highly productive or even, you know, just reliably productive guys, you know, uh, deep into your depth chart on the inside of your defensive line. That's why they're so that's why they're so, you know, important, especially in this kind of three, four defensive structure. You know, so for a guy who's been kind of up and down, has, has had injuries, you know, and I think people kind of have some questions on exactly what it is that his trajectory is going to be. He's got a great mm-hmm. opportunity where he's probably not going to be asked to do a ton. And whatever he's able to produce is going to be surplus value. And the more of that he can provide, I think the more viable this defense is going to be long term. You've got some bona fide draft chops. We were all scratching our heads a little bit with LJ Collier. To me, it seems like a guy who just had his best week of football at the perfect time yep. <laughs> at the senior bowl. Yep. But like, is there a reason to be hopeful that like, kind of like Rashad Penny, if there's a delayed payoff with this late first round pick? I would say with Rashad Penny, he, he, he walked in with the bona fides of being like a very good running back at a program. He almost won the had, Heisman. He was right, a Heisman. That player. has a history yeah. of developing really good running backs, right? Like everything about Rashad Penny kind of checked the box of at worst, he's going to be an NFL-level running back, right? Maybe he's not a star, but we knew he was going to be an NFL-level running back on size, athletic ability, and his pedigree through college. To your point with LJ, that was very much a got hot when everybody's eyes in the NFL were on you, you know, and that kind of draws draws people's attention a little bit more. And to your point, I think that where, where Pete talks about being arrogant, I think that that was like a classic Pete Carroll, I see something in a guy, I can make something mm-hmm. of the guy and, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not moving off of this until I see it all the way through. That's where that win forever stuff, I think can become more of a, yeah. a liability than an asset. <laughs> you know, <laughs> How uh, dare you, sir? Oh, dude, you, you don't got to sell it to me, man. I, I literally have the book on my shelf. So. I got the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I hand, I hand wrote his pyramid of success and hilarious. put it on my wall. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, yeah, man. Like, so I, I definitely think that that's to, to the point of, of Pete, maybe talking about, getting a little ahead, a little bit out over his skis in terms of his own process. He, I think that LJ definitely fits into that. And that's why I'm like, if it's going to happen for him, man, scheme change, you know, bringing in more guys who take a little bit of stress off of him in terms of where he is in the rotation. If you're going to give anything, 2022 is a year. And if it's not this year, man, I think that, you know, maybe cutting your losses and just trying to yeah. fit that spot in another spot, you know, with another guy might be the best move long-term. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and now they've got, the assets to to go do do so yeah which is which is nice all right man listen so much of the discourse surrounding the seahawks this offseason certainly from a national perspective is how rough the offense might look and i think a lot of that is warranted for sure 
But am I crazy to think that this defense could be like top eight this season? Eight for me might be a little ambitious, just given what I think about the <laughs> top so kind defenses <laughs> in the NFL. Um, you can just tell me I'm crazy. No, because I, it's not like I think they're going to be bottom eight. I, I don't expect that. I, I don't expect that. I trust Sean Desai. I think that Clint Hurt knows exactly what he wants to do with this defense. And I think that having your defensive coordinator um, for this particular scheme be your D-line guy is, pro- is like almost best case scenario. And having Desai that can kind of teach him what what's happening on the coverage end. Like you've got all the ingredients from a brain trust perspective to make this happen. A lot of this really just does come down to their best players. Like, Will this scheme allow Jamal Adams to play more big nickel? Will he be able to play as a safety over tight ends, you know, and kind of unlock some of that versatility again in his game um, and not be stuck kind of doing maybe just one or two things? You know, can Quandre Diggs be healthy, you know, throughout the season? And if he is, we know exactly what kind of player he is. I don't have to speculate on your returns for him as a player. You know, if Jordan Brooks can continue to grow as a player, like to me, those are kind of like the linchpin guys that I'm really looking at. And then everything from there is just like your typical stuff in the NFL, right? Can your role players outperform their contract value is ultimately what it comes down to. I think they've got a lot of pieces who can be solid contributors. And a lot of this is just going to be, can you get edge rush production that's serious, that's consistent, that last week that last week over week? And then are your corners good enough to live in one-on-one coverage? And the more of that they're able to do, again, the more it allows your best players to do. So that's what I think the story of this defense is going to be. And that sounds to me like a middle-of-the-pack middle type of defense, right? <laughs> so, so that's kind of what I'm expecting in terms of my returns uh, for, from Seattle this year. So then what does it take in your eyes – for that defense to take that next leap to go from say maybe 11th or 12th in the league up to like sixth, I think it's all players yeah that's where you're getting the Jimmys and Joes over X's and O's man that that's that's all talent acquisition that that's exactly why I, I keep using Brandon Staley as an example because just the most recent 4-3 to 3-4 change that I have in the front of my mind but Again, first thing he does in the offseason, it's not anything with the offense. They'll keep the entire offensive roster together. The first thing is, no, I've got to go trade for Khalil Mack, and we're bringing in Sebastian Joseph Day and Austin Johnson, and I'm, we're, we're fixing this defensive front right this moment. Right? Chargers going to be a problem, man. Absolutely. And I'm, <laughs> that's actually – I'm not a Chargers fan in spite of the fact of them being my hometown team, but – that is who I'm going to go see as often as I can this year. Yes. I, I don't mind yes. making the drive up to L.A. to go watch them play. I think they're going they, to be a very they are my product. They are my adopted team as Seattle transitions, oh, man. Oh, I'm, dude, you're I'm, doing I'm the down here thing up. perfectly already. You've already got your <laughs> secondary franchise. You're <laughs> talking to a lifelong Chargers fan there now. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Been here since Kellen Winslow. That, that, that's what as I always of, say. As of, yeah, yes, sir. As of March 8, 2022, man – Chargers fan Powder for blue, life. baby. Powder Until blue and gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good dose of reality for me, too. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about this defense, but it is true. You know, when you look at what the top defenses have in terms of pass rushing talent, Seattle is definitely a tier below. But right. like we said earlier, this is this is a developmental year for them. And and I'm going to be excited to kind of see how things progress. So really, really appreciate your insight on this today, man. No, man, I appreciate you guys having me. Like I said, I know we played phone tag for a little bit, try to make this thing happen. So I'm glad I was able to jump on. I actually, 
I love for for as unhinged as uh, Seahawks and, and Trailblazers and Pacific Northwest fans can be online. <laughs> I think that as an Eagles fan, I can identify with some of that behavior yeah, yeah. <laughs> on, on the internet. Yeah. So I always love exchanging <laughs> and talking with with Seahawks fans, and you know that that passion I think is is what draws me to you guys more often than not. Well, we we certainly appreciate you busting the pod with your knowledge, man. Where can the people who are listening get a little bit more of your stuff? So social media-wise, I'm on Twitter tweeting about football, if I'm tweeting at all, at Deontay Lee FB. Um, Outside of that, you can go to The Athletic. Um, Right now I'm working on a defensive glossary that I think will bring everybody's level of understanding on that side of the ball a little bit closer to where I think it should be as consumers, as fans. So I'm really looking forward to getting that process and that project put together and out to you guys. If you've missed what I wrote about, you know, the Legion of Bloom era and transitioning into more of a 3-4 Vic Fangio style of defense, that's on there. Um, And and I'm usually covering the draft, but I'll be doing all my typical, you know, NFL and, and college football coverage once we're in season as well. So you will definitely see my face and hear my unfortunate voice more often <laughs> uh, as we get closer to the season. Seriously, though, I, I think it was pinned at the top of your Twitter profile for a while. For a is while, is yeah. your LOB article still there? Either way, just just look up Deontay Lee LOB, read the article. It's It's such a great distillation of what made them great what led to the downfall and and ultimately to the transition that we're talking about today. Deontay, thank you so much again, man. You know, the, the best thing that we can hope for with this show is that we get a little bit smarter with each episode. You definitely did that today. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you guys for having me. Of course, man. And if you're checking us out for the first time, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Feel free to give us a follow on social media as well. You can find me on Twitter at at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is at at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can find us on Instagram at at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. And of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave a quick review. We are extremely blessed to have your support as the show continues to grow. And y'all show us that not only by tuning in, but in leaving those reviews and sharing on social media. And we appreciate it so much. Please keep it up. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. 